Greetings from the heart of a friend. This is Andy Wygand, and welcome to the second part of this series on the soft power of listening, episode 39. Here's a question that opens Kate Murphy's book, You're Not Listening. Quote, When was the last time you really listened to someone without thinking about what you wanted to say next, without glancing down at your phone or jumping in and offering your opinion? And when was the last time someone really listened to you, was so attentive and responsive to what you were saying that you felt truly understood? End quote. Let's just admit that sadly, this doesn't happen often enough. Too many of our conversations and relationships are characterized by shallow, drive-by conversations. But the recognition of the problem is always the first step in its solution, and there is hope. That's why I felt compelled to do this series, Ears, the Soft Power of Listening. In this episode, we'll consider what is arguably the secret sauce of all great conversation. And I hope that this time together reminds us all that we can do better, and that we're all destined for more than what we've become. Studs Terkel was a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and hosted a radio program for 45 years. He was famous for his ability to talk to anybody. One of his books is a collection of interviews with people from all walks of life, from garbage collectors and grave diggers to surgeons and industrial engineers. It was called Working. People talk about what they do all day and how they feel about what they do. His parents ran a rooming house in Chicago, so growing up he learned to interact with the tenants and visitors and met all kinds of people. He learned to listen well. Kate Murphy, in her book, quotes Turkle in an interview, quote, The obvious tool of my trade is the tape recorder, but I suppose the real tool is curiosity, end quote. That curiosity led to countless fascinating conversations and a Pulitzer Prize, Murphy observes, he made a career out of his curiosity. Well, here's my point. Arguably, the single most important factor in listening well is curiosity. Curiosity really is the secret sauce of all good conversation. You see, curiosity activates all the other qualities of a good listener. For instance, if you're genuinely curious you won't be tempted to interrupt or change the subject. You won't have to think about maintaining good eye contact. You won't have to think about your body language. You'll be sitting on the edge of your seat, waiting to hear what the speaker has to say next. Curiosity will keep us locked into the flow of the conversation. Curiosity. It's the single most important factor in listening well. It's the secret sauce. Great conversations are driven by curiosity. One of my recreational interests is golf. I don't play that often, so I'm what's called a weekend golfer, but occasionally I've taken a lesson. Now, the golf swing is complicated. There are a lot of moving parts, things to think about as you swing. The grip, the stance, the takeaway, the angle of your spine, your arms, your hips, your head, your shoulders, and there's the club face and the wrists, and the list goes on and on. Now, the best lesson is the one where the pro gives you one thing to do, one thing to think about, one swing thought. And if you execute that, 
it fixes a bunch of other things about your swing. Three or four things to think about, and my brain shuts down. One thing to think about, and I can usually handle that. One move that activates all the other right moves. That's what a great teaching pro is able to do. Well, this is the way curiosity functions. It's the one move we can make in conversation that activates all the other right moves. As I've mentioned, body language, eye contact, etc. The key to listening well is one thing, curiosity. It's the secret sauce of all great conversations. So the one takeaway of this episode is follow your curiosity. Make a career out of your curiosity. It may not lead to a Pulitzer Prize, but it's sure to lead to much deeper and more rewarding relationships. Now, please don't think when I use the word curiosity, I'm encouraging you to be nosy. Nobody likes a busybody, someone who pries into other people's lives, who butts in where they don't belong. All I mean by follow your curiosity is to show an interest in another person. Give them space and time to talk about themselves, if they want to. If we express our interest in them, if we express our curiosity by means of a thoughtful question, it's not being nosy. It's a way of honoring them. It's a way of affirming you're important, a way of saying, I think you may have experiences, thoughts, and feelings that are worth hearing. It's an affirmation. Asking a thoughtful question leaves the ball in their court. Unless you're obnoxious and pushy, there's little risk of appearing to be nosy. They can share as little or as much as they want to. They're in control. But the reality is, if they think you're interested, most people can't wait to talk. I was pastor for 40 years, and I quickly learned that people do want to talk about themselves. Believe me, all it takes is an invitation, a simple question. How are you, really? can lead to an informal therapy session right in the middle of the grocery store. It's happened to me countless times. On the one hand, when we're invited to tell our story, it's as if someone is handing us a wonderful gift. On the other hand, when nobody shows an interest in us, it's disappointing, and over time, we feel diminished, unimportant. It hurts, and sometimes it leads to anger and depression. Our sense of isolation and loneliness grows, and this isn't good. In the first episode of this series, I shared briefly about our unusually full summer itinerary. New Grand Sun, Florida, Yellowstone, Tetons, the Adirondacks. Now, when I mention this to some people, they show real interest and curiosity to hear more. And that makes me feel good and fulfills a need I have to talk about it. It gives me the impression that they really care. In other cases... People are polite, but show no interest in hearing much more. No curiosity. And honestly, it's a disappointment to me. It creates a feeling of more distance in our relationship. We all have this need to talk, myself included. But too often, there's a shortage of good listeners. And that's sad. So when I say, follow your curiosity, I don't mean we should try to pry into places we're not wanted, I do mean we should show a genuine interest in other people and invite them to tell part of their story to us. I guarantee most people, most of the time, will jump at the opportunity. To be disinterested is to come across as uncaring. 
to come across as uncaring is hurtful. But a healthy curiosity, appropriately expressed, is life-giving. So follow your curiosity. It is the secret sauce of all great conversations. The problem is, however, that often we're just not that curious. As I just said, there's a shortage of good listeners. We just don't seem to care enough to ask thoughtful questions and listen attentively. Our curiosity quotient is often dismally low. One study concluded that children ask 120 questions a day. I can believe it. But by the time we're adults, we only ask an average of six or seven. So somewhere between childhood and adulthood, we lose over 100 questions a day. We've lost touch with the innate curiosity we had as children. Some of us just aren't that curious anymore. Often we're too preoccupied with our own lives to be that interested in others. So what should we do? I'll be back in just a few moments to talk some more about the solution to this problem. So how can we cultivate greater curiosity? It may help to recognize that curiosity is not an involuntary impulse. It's a quality that we can choose if we want to. It's a muscle that can be exercised and grow stronger. Curiosity is a habit that can be intentionally developed. And we're smart if we do. Curiosity is good for us. It keeps us learning and growing intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. It's an admission that we don't have all the answers. It keeps us engaged with others in the outside world. It keeps us from a preoccupation with ourselves and our own problems. It fights rigid thinking. It keeps life from becoming a bore, and it keeps us from becoming a bore. Curiosity makes us sharper in almost every area of life. Here are a couple of examples. Kate Murphy writes about Charles Darwin's creative breakthrough in coming up with a theory of natural selection. Quote, Go back and look at Darwin's wide-ranging reading list, and you can imagine that had he made buying decisions based on Amazon's algorithmic recommendations, we might not have on the origin of the species. In addition to many books pertaining to zoology and titles like Thomas Malthus's Population and Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments, Darwin also read French studies on the influence of prostitution on morals and public hygiene, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, Shakespeare's works and novels by Jane Austen. He was following the threads of his own idiosyncratic and unpredictable interests, his curiosity, which fed his creativity and informed his scientific output. End quote. Like Studs Terkel, Darwin's curiosity made his career what it was. Mark Miller, in his recent book, Smart Leadership, Four Simple Choices to Scale Your Impact, highlights curiosity. Fuel curiosity, he writes. It's one of the four choices that will scale your leadership capacity. He says, rediscover your curiosity. Ask more and better questions. 
questions to a leader, he says, are like a pickaxe to a frontier miner. He shares a story about Jim Collins, a global thought leader in the field of leadership. Good to Great is one of his well-known books. At a conference, Collins asked everyone to consider their question-to-statement ratio. He encouraged them not only to be aware of their current ratio, how often they ask a question versus making a statement, but he also suggested they double the number of questions. Miller writes, While I and the thousands assembled were still pondering the implications of a shift of that magnitude, Collins added, and then double it again. How can we cultivate greater curiosity? Collins shows the way. Learn to ask more and better questions. In an average conversation, what's your question-to-statement ratio? Whatever the answer, double it. Then double it again. Curiosity is a muscle that can be exercised and grow stronger. It's a habit that can be developed intentionally. And good questions are the essential tool for fueling curiosity and generating great conversations. So let's spend some time talking about questions. Like a pickaxe to a frontier miner, questions uncover buried treasure. It's why the use of questions in teaching has such an ancient history. The so-called Socratic method uses questions to generate good discussion, critical thinking, and new insights. An old Jewish rabbi was asked by one of his pupils, Why is it that you rabbis so often put your teaching in the form of a question? The rabbi shot back. So what's wrong with a question? Good questions lead to great conversations and discoveries. A good question asked at the right time is worth its conversational weight in gold. Like a pickaxe to a frontier miner, questions uncover buried treasure. Of course, not all questions are created equal. There are different types of questions, and each type has its own purpose and value. First, there are practical questions. Kate Murphy describes these, quote, Think of when your child comes home from school. You might ask a string of rapid-fire questions. How is school? Have you eaten? Do you have homework? What did you get on your French test? Did you bring home your lunchbox? Similarly, when greeting your spouse, you might ask, How was work? Did you finish your proposal? Did you want to have the neighbors over for dinner on Friday? Do you have dry cleaning? Sounds super friendly, caring, and curious, but it's actually you running down a checklist to determine where things stand and what needs to happen next. It's not a real conversation, and it's not listening. Not that practical questions shouldn't be asked. Of course they should. It's just that When those are the only kinds of questions you ask, the relationship suffers. End quote. So practical questions are necessary, but they won't take a relationship very far beyond the superficial. Second, there are open-ended questions. Now, open-ended questions are questions that cannot be answered with one word. They're questions that don't limit the speaker. For instance, if you ask someone, were you terrified? Or were you angry? They'll likely respond with the equivalent of yes or no. Instead, if you ask, what was it like? Or how did you feel? They have the opportunity to think for themselves and share more of the story. You will get a more interesting and revealing response. 
the conversation will go deeper, and so will the relationship. Kate Murphy shares an amusing story about Naomi Henderson, who's a professional moderator of focus groups and has her own training institute. She's famous for her ability to connect with others and draw them out. Quote, One of her greatest talents is asking questions that don't rob people of their stories. For example, when moderating a focus group for a grocery store chain that wanted to find out what motivates people to shop late at night, she didn't ask what would seem like the most obvious questions. Do you shop late at night because you didn't get around to doing it during the day? Is it because stores are less crowded at night, etc.? All are logical reasons to shop at night and likely would have gotten affirmative responses had she asked. Nor did Naomi simply ask why they shop late at night. She told me, why tends to make people defensive, like they have to justify themselves. Instead, Naomi turned her question into an invitation. Tell me about the last time you went to the store after 11 p.m. A quite unassuming woman who had said little up to that point raised her hand. I just had smoked a joint and was looking for a menage a Troy. Me, Ben, and Jerry, she said. Insights like that are why people hire Naomi. End quote. So open-ended questions are questions that invite people to tell more of their story. I mentioned in the last episode about a conversation exercise that Pete Scazzaro recommends for married couples. It starts with the open-ended question. What's the biggest thing impacting you now and how are you feeling about it? What a great question. It opens the door and invites the other person to reveal some deeply personal thoughts and feelings. Open-ended questions do that, and we would be smart to use them as often as we can. So, there are practical questions and open-ended questions, but there's one more category, and I'll be back in just a few moments to talk about the most important questions of all. So practical questions and open-ended questions are important, of course. But the most important questions of all are what I'll call follow-up questions. And they happen to be, at least in my observation, the most uncommon in everyday conversation. But I would argue that these are the most important. If questions are pickaxes to uncover buried treasure then follow-up questions will get you to the seams of conversational silver and gold faster than anything. Unfortunately, too many of us stop at the first question. We change the subject or we move on to share some of our own story. We make the assumption that the speakers finished unpacking their story before they have. But this keeps the conversation from going deeper. It keeps the person talking, from peeling back the layers of their story. It prevents more personal feelings and thoughts from coming out in the open. It's listening superficially. It doesn't give curiosity the air to breathe and the time to go deeper. A follow-up question does that. When we ask, well, tell me more. What happened next? How did you feel? So what changed for you after that experience? 
These kinds of questions invite the person to get underneath their story, to peel back the layers, to dig deeper and share more, if they want to. To change the subject, to share our own story before making sure the speaker's finished, is to short-circuit the conversation. To use follow-up questions creates the opportunity for deeper and more personal sharing. Kate Murphy suggests that the most common kind of conversation may go something like this. She calls it a shift response. John speaking. My dog got out last week and it took three days to find him. Mary speaking. Our dog is always digging under the fence, so we can't let him out unless he's on a leash. Do you see how Mary's response shifted the attention in the conversation away from John to her? This is what Murphy means by a shift response. Now, here's an example of the opposite, what Murphy calls a support response. John, my dog got out last week and it took three days to find him. Mary, oh no, where did you finally find him? Do you see how in this case Mary's response did not shift the conversation away from John, but instead her follow-up questions supported him? Her curiosity encouraged him to continue talking about the loss of his dog. Now, here's another example. Sue. I watched this really good documentary about turtles last night. Bob. I'm not big on documentaries. I'm more of an action film kind of guy. Again, this is a shift response. The attention shifts from Sue to Bob. Now, here's a support response. Sue. I watched this really good documentary about turtles last night. Bob, turtles? How did you happen to see that? Are you into turtles? This kind of support response gives Sue the invitation to continue talking about the documentary she saw and her interest in turtles. It expresses curiosity, which allows the conversation to go deeper. It's the secret sauce at work. A shift response is symptomatic of what Murphy calls conversational narcissism. A support response, on the other hand, defers to the speaker and allows the conversation to deepen and the connection between the speaker and the listener to grow. Murphy cites a statement from Winston Churchill's mother, Lady Randolph Churchill. She describes dining separately with arch-rival British politicians Benjamin Disraeli, and William Gladstone. Quote, When I left the dining room after sitting next to Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in England. But when I sat next to Disraeli, I left feeling that I was the cleverest woman. Unquote. It's no surprise that she preferred Disraeli's company. You see, apparently, Disraeli was a master at steering the conversation toward whomever he was with, a master of the support response. It also made him a favorite of Queen Victoria. And the truth is that we would all prefer to be in a conversation with a Disraeli rather than a Gladstone. We would all prefer to be on the receiving end of a support response, to be the subject, at least for a while, of someone's curiosity and their follow-up questions. If we're in conversations to serve others, then 
questions become our greatest gift to the conversation. And follow-up questions will take us to surprising and rewarding places. To quote again from Mark Miller in his book, Smart Leadership, quote, A good question responded to thoughtfully almost always opens the door to another question. While listening to a response, we're actually listening at several levels, content, emotional charge, tone, word choice, and more. One of the most helpful things we should be listening for is an open door to ask another question. The insight you're seeking is often not behind that first, second, or third door, but many layers deep into the conversation. The key to each door is another question. End quote. Following your curiosity is the simplest way to have a great conversation, and following your curiosity will inevitably lead to a support response Good questions, and then more questions, follow-up questions. These are the most important. Each question is a key that unlocks another door, and each door opens up to reveal a deeper insight. And each time this happens, the conversation becomes more interesting for both the speaker and the listener. You know, I still haven't discovered the one move that will fix my golf swing. It's most likely a hopeless cause. But there is, without a doubt, one move that can raise the level of our game and make us into top-ranking listeners. Follow your curiosity. It activates all the other right moves. It's the secret sauce of every great conversation. There's a robot on Mars. It was launched in 2011 and landed in 2012. It was designated to do research on climate, geology, and planetary habitability in preparation for human exploration. It's still operational. What caught my eye? They named it Curiosity. Well, few of us, if any, will ever end up on Mars. But we don't need to be on a different planet to benefit from the discoveries of our own curiosity. Outer space is not the only frontier. And we may not become the recipients of a Pulitzer Prize, but make a career out of your curiosity, and new and rewarding worlds are just around the corner, just waiting to be discovered, maybe even in your very next conversation. I want to invite you to continue to explore with me this neglected but powerful skill of listening. Next episode, I'll offer a checklist. How can we evaluate ourselves as listeners? See how we're doing and where we can use some work. With apologies to Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I'm giving this next episode the title, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Listeners. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and consider leaving a short review if you found this helpful. As always, some notes are available at the end of each episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you've been encouraged that we are all destined for more than what we've become. This is From the Heart of a Friend.